Man, that was an awesome day, wasn't it? Wow, that was so, so cool. I hope a lot of you were able to be there for that. It was just an exciting time to see so many people publicly declare their faith in Jesus Christ. And you know, some of the people that got baptized had only decided to do it that day. And so they, that one of them actually came forward at the end of the service and said, I want to get baptized. And I said, well, do you want to do it today? We've got a service going on later. And they didn't even know. So what an exciting time it was. Hey, we're so glad you're here this morning. Thanks for being here with us. And I want to say hi to everybody watching online as well. Welcome. We're glad you're with us too, wherever you are worshiping God together. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at First Free Church. If you're new, I would love to get to know you. So please come up and say hi after the service or let us know at efree.org slash connect. We would love to connect with you and get you plugged into the church. There's so much great stuff going on here between our groups and our ministries to serve in as well as care for you. So we want to make that all available for you. Well, today we are going to take a pause from our series in the book of Acts, and we have a special guest speaker, and I get to introduce them. I'm very excited to bring this guest speaker to you. I'll give you a little bit of the background. Many years ago, when my wife and I were both in Bible college, I graduated, but after I graduated, there was this new professor that came into our university that she got to have one class with. And she absolutely loved it. She thought it was amazing. And so she brought me in and introduced me to her professor. And I thought it was pretty cool too. And then we ended up at the same church for a few years and got to know each other better then and just had a wonderful relationship. Great friend. I've learned a lot from him. And I'm really, really excited for you to get to meet him today and hear from him as well. His name is Dr. David Croto. He's the dean of the seminary and the school of ministry at Columbia International University. And his, his teaching has been phenomenal for me, but even on a personal level, the time we've had together to, to be able to just talk about the things of God has been really enriching to my life and really helped shape me in, in my views and ministry and about the Bible. So later today at 1.30 p.m., there's going to be a next level seminar that you can go to that, that he's going to cover one of his uh, favorite topics. At least I assume it's still your favorite topic. You've spoken about it so many times, Urban Legends of the New Testament. And he wrote a book on this. He's, he's written other books as well. But this one on urban legends of the New Testament is so cool because, and we get into this sometimes here, what are things that people commonly believe but might not be biblically or historically accurate? You know, I, I love that kind of stuff. Well, if you've enjoyed that, this is like taking it to a whole new level. He's going to get into some of the things that we think we know, that we've maybe heard a lot. We may have even heard preached about a lot. Hopefully nothing that I've preached. I don't know. And why it's wrong. So if you're into that kind of stuff, you are going to want to be here today at 1.30. We're going to be in the activity center. And you know what? It's a gym. If you want to go grab some lunch and bring it there and just eat during the seminar, that's fine. I don't think he's going to mind. Um, it'll be a good time. And I, I promise you will learn a lot. It'll be great for you. So that's today at 1.30 p.m. But now I would like to just uh, give a warm welcome together to Dr. David Crota. Would you welcome him as he comes? Thanks, Adam. Appreciate that. Yeah, I do hope to see you at 1.30 today. Um, I love the topic of urban legends. Um, Adam, I have taught some of them myself before I researched them. So I am guilty of, of some of the ones this afternoon. To give you a little tease, um, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Was there a gate in Jerusalem? Maybe, maybe not. Come this afternoon, you might find out. So I love preaching on the topic, teaching on the topic of giving. I'm not a pastor. Uh, I'm dean of a seminary, as, as Pastor Adam said, 
And so I get to go into churches and talk about this topic and, and, and not really feel like I'm doing this for my benefit because it's not for my benefit. And some people might think, well, you're doing it for the benefit of the pastors. I'm not doing it for them either. I'm doing it for your benefit. So I love talking about it because you can't look at me and go, well, you just, you just want more of my money. I, I don't get any of your money. And it's great. It's wonderful. But let's talk about today giving what the Bible has to say about giving the sharing of your financial resources with the local church. I want to talk about how a focus on the gospel should motivate and drive Christian giving. The four concepts that we'll spend some time on today are grace, love, relationship, and thankfulness. But first, have you ever considered the main reasons people don't give more? When I was in, in seminary, I was driving home from work one night. I was listening to the radio, and there was this financial Christian financial guy in the radio. And a guy had called in, and the guy said, look, I've been following your principles, your financial principles for years. And I've saved up a lot of money. And the radio guy says, well, how much money have you saved up? And he goes, well, you know, I'm 50 years old, and I've saved up $1.5 million. And the guy says, well, you must make a lot of money. He goes, no, I make about 50000 a year, 50, 55000 a year. And he goes, really? And you've saved up $1.5 That's incredible. Then he's talking to his radio audience. Folks, this is what I'm talking about. You follow these principles. You can save up all the money. Sir, why did you call today? And he goes, well, I called not because of that. I called because I've been following these principles of saving and, and watching where every penny goes. And they're wonderful. But now I realize I have a problem giving. And so I'll see a need and I can meet that need, but I can't, I can't open up my heart to give. And, and the radio host says, oh, that's okay. You've saved up $1.5 million. And the radio host just took this man who did a nationwide confession of the sin of stinginess and greed and said it was okay. It's not okay. Why, why is it people have a hard time giving? Stinginess could be one. I saw one website that listed 52 reasons people don't give. We're going to go through all 50. No, we're not going to go through all 52. But I wanted to give you a, a few reasons that, that people don't give. Excuses for, for, for stingy giving. Uh, one of them is many have said that if they made more money, they had a higher income, then they would give more. Well, the stats don't show that to be true. People who make twenty to $30,000 a year give a higher percentage of their income than those making $80,000 per year. Making more does not cause generous giving. In fact, if you want to be more of a generous giver, according to the stats, your prayer should be that you'd make less money. And of course, none of us want to pray to make less money. So that's not the solution. Number two, People, some people will say, God doesn't need our money. You know what? They're right. God doesn't need your money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? But using this as an excuse not to give is also implying that God doesn't want your money. Realize that giving to God benefits us. We need it for our spiritual growth. God does want us to give our financial resources. It's not because he needs it. It's for our benefit. A third excuse people will give. They'll say that God loves a cheerful giver. And I'm not feeling very cheerful about giving this morning, so I shouldn't give at all. 
Some of these sound kind of good on the surface. Then you spend about 2.3 seconds thinking about it. And you go, yeah, that, that doesn't really work. Well, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 does say that God loves a cheerful giver. But this doesn't mean that we simply wait until we happen to feel cheerful one Sunday morning before we give. With giving, it's possible that the joy comes only after the gift is given. I, when I go on trips, I, I try to spend a little bit of time shopping in the area to get a gift from that area for my wife or my, or my kids when they were younger. So this afternoon, I'll go around St. Louis a little bit and, and try to find something that I can bring back from my wife that says St. Louis. I bring her back barbecue, but it probably wouldn't last. So travel well. So I don't enjoy doing that. I love my wife, but I don't enjoy the shopping experience and the buying of the gift. I'm not really cheerful what I'm doing. I'm more anxious and nervous and trying to find the right thing. But you know what happens when I give her the gift, especially when it's the right thing? Lots of joy, lots of cheer, lots of happiness for me, hopefully from her too, but for me. And in the act of giving, I start experiencing the joy. So sometimes we need to do the activity to experience the joy that comes with it. We'll talk more about how to develop this mindset later. The fourth reason, I'm not going through all 52, just four. The fourth reason is people will say, well, since the Bible says that money is the root of all evil, or some people will just say money is evil, money has no place in the church. We shouldn't be talking about money. Well, the Bible doesn't actually say money is evil. The Bible doesn't say the money is the root of all evil. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The difference between these statements is enormous. And this verse, properly understood in its context, it's one of the urban legends, uh, helps give a warning about money, a warning we need to heed. In fact, most of this message is actually structured around this truth about the love of money and how to overcome it. So I don't want to talk to you today about how much you should give. I could list percentages. We could talk about the Old Testament teaching on giving. We could talk about the New Testament uh, giving. We could really focus in on numbers and money. But there are some struggles in the Christian life where when you zoom in and you focus really closely on the, on the issue, on the problem, you can actually make it worse. Some of you may have struggled with depression or anxiety. Many people are struggling with these things. Well, if you came to me and said that you were struggling with anxiety, and I said, okay, let's talk for the next two hours. You can tell me all the things you're anxious about. And the next week you came back, and I said, tell me more about the things you're anxious about. After about five or six weeks, your anxiety is going to be so much worse because you're focusing on all the things you're anxious about. But sometimes what we need is a refocusing. So rather than saying, tell me all the things you're anxious about, or let's talk about the numbers and the percentage and look at your bank account and analyze all these things. Sometimes we need a refocusing and we should focus on what is good, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is of good repute, what is excellent. We focus on those things and then we, our mindset changes, our heart changes towards the issue that we're struggling with. And we're going to apply this line of thinking to the giving of our financial resources to the local church. In fact, let's not talk about money at all right now. Let's talk about seagulls and shrimp. I love shrimp. A few years ago, first time I ever had coconut shrimp at a Bubba Gump's in San Francisco. It was incredible. 
I think my family was with me, but I was so engrossed in the coconut shrimp, I didn't even see them. A few weeks ago, I went to Red Lobster, got some coconut shrimp. Again, I know my wife and my daughter were there, but they seemed to kind of be a blur as I was eating the coconut. I would just love coconut shrimp. Seagulls, on the other hand, <clears throat> not a big fan. You know, if I'm at the beach and I see seagulls flying around, I don't like stare at them in awe of how they look. Not a big fan. And then something happened a few years ago that made me kind of tip the scale on my, my thoughts on seagulls. So it was my, my mother-in-law's 70th birthday, and we all did a trip together. This is probably six, six or seven years ago. And my son at the time would have been about 12, 13. And you know how 12, 13-year-old boys are always hungry? Like they finish a meal, and two hours later, it's like they've never eaten in their life. So we, we took this boat out to this island called Catalina off the, the shore of California. And we're there, and my son is starving. Like he's going to die if he doesn't get something to eat. So there's a, a little stand there, and he gets in line to get a burger. It takes forever to get to the front of the line to order it. He orders it. It takes forever for him to get the burger. He gets the burger. He goes out on the beach where we're all sitting out on the beach, and he, he unwraps the burger, this you know, 12-year-old boy, and he takes a bite, and he was like, ah. Oh. And he holds the burger up and looks at it. And the seagull comes down, knocks it out of his hand. Ten other seagulls descend. And I decided at that moment, seagulls were my enemies for life. So I'm not a big fan of seagulls. That's what makes the following story all the more fascinating to me. Years ago, on Friday evenings, a man named Eddie would walk down a Florida beach. And as the sun would be setting on the day and the, the waves were crashing onto the shore, you could see Eddie with a bucket filled with shrimp throwing the shrimp to the seagulls one by one. And, and as always, Eddie was there on Fridays, and as always, the seagulls would come, and as, al and as always, he would throw the shrimp, and as they would eat it, he would say to them, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, what would cause a man to be so thankful for seagulls, so much so that he took his time and his money and systematically, week in and week out, go to the beach and feed seagulls? We'll return to the story of Eddie a little bit later. So let's talk about motivations. What I'm really concerned about today is the heart. I think if we take care of the heart, the amount, the money, all that things will, will, will start to take care of itself. I'm going to focus in on the heart. What motivates you to give? What, what causes you to take money out of your bank account? Money you could spend on new clothes. Money you could spend on barbecue. Money you could spend on a new car, on anything you want. What causes you not to do that and instead give to the local church. A few years ago, I was a worship leader at a church in North Carolina. It was the last Sunday of the year. We had an ice storm. Church was shut down. Too dangerous. Way too dangerous. Shut down church. And, you know, the pastor had told me he didn't want to do that because usually when you cancel a service, you never make up giving wise for that service that's canceled. So he, he canceled church. And then he sends an email out on Monday morning and says, look, it's the end of the year. If you want your giving this year to count on this year's taxes, you got to get in, get it in by noon on Wednesday. So the following Saturday, I'm at the church. And I'm like, so how, how did it go? Did, 
did it go okay? He goes, oh yeah, it was the best, best offering of the year. I go, what do you mean? We didn't even have a church. He goes, right. When I told people to get it on their taxes for this year, get it in by Wednesday, it was the biggest offering of the year. So what really motivated giving in that church was a tax break. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting a tax break. Nothing wrong with that at all, in my opinion. But should that be the driving force for giving? Main motivation you have for giving? Let me talk about one incorrect motivation for giving, and then we'll talk about four correct motivations for giving. One incorrect. We're going to spend some time in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says in Matthew 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Matthew 6, 1 through 18 contains Jesus's teaching on three topics, giving, prayer, and fasting. And the introductory statement to this section of Matthew 6 is the key. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. This verse is important as Jesus supplies the underlying principle to the three teachings that are to follow. So he's saying that if your intention in giving, praying, fasting, if your intention is for others to see your righteous acts, then your reward has been received. They saw. The key here is the intention. He's talking about the heart. If your purpose in giving or praying or fasting is to be seen by people, there is a heart problem. And he illustrates this, this underlying principle with those three examples. With prayer, especially verses 5 through 8, Jesus commands his disciples to pray in secret. Now, if you take that over literally, that means never pray in public, which we have done several times this morning. But that's not a problem because he's talking about the heart. What's the motivation for your prayer? For fasting, verses 16 to 18, some people have interpreted Jesus's words to mean that you can't tell anyone when you're fasting or you've invalidated the fast. I've heard this from several people in my life. In fact, let me give you a mistake I made as, as a young husband in case any of you are in this situation so you won't duplicate it, stand on my shoulders. So we were married for a few months. And I decided at one point I was going to do a fast for a couple days. Now, by the way, some people would just say I've invalidated that fast because I mentioned this to you of this fast that I did 25 years ago. Because certainly I was doing that so I could use this story 25 years later to receive praise from you. That would be the mindset. So I decided I was going to fast for a few days, but I was told you can't tell anybody. So I get home from, from school. I was in seminary. I get home from school and my beautiful young bride had cooked a meal for me because I can't tell her. I can't tell anybody. So she has, she has this meal out and she says, you ready to eat dinner? I said, oh, I'm not going to eat tonight. 
Oh, I wish I could see, show you a picture of her face. No, I'm actually, I'm glad I don't have a picture of her face. And I saw the disappointment, and she was just like, what's wrong? Do you not like my cooking? Is it, you know, what, what's going on here? Something wrong? Are you okay? Are you sick? And she was just, you know, really concerned. And, I, and I'm like, I guess I have to tell her, but I, I'm not supposed to. So I told her, I said, well, I'm, I'm fasting. She's like, why didn't you tell me? I was like, I didn't want to invalidate the fast. And then that led me to study the passage more and realize it's talking about the heart. I wasn't fasting so that my, my, my wife would think that I was so that's righteous, you know, young man. That's not the reason I was fasting. I was trying to draw closer to God. It's about the intentions of the heart. So Jesus provides this underlying principle of something to avoid. Don't do righteous acts to be seen by people. So his main point is that his followers should give to the poor without being motivated by receiving praise from other people. If what motivates your giving is the hope of others seeing you give and taking notice of your giving, then there's a heart problem connected to your giving. I'm not saying it's problematic if you give and someone sees you. It's about the heart. You don't have to sneak your giving into the offering box. We used to have the plates that would go by. We don't do that in many churches anymore because of the COVID and the pandemic and everything, but offering plates. Um, and, and I knew a guy one time I was talking about this, this passage in class, and he, he told me this story where his parents, on, when they were young, him and his uh, brothers and sisters were young, on Saturday night, his parents would teach the kids how to take an offering plate, palm the money, slip it into the plate, and pass it by so no one would see. And they would practice it over and over again so, so that the kids could give and no one would see. Because you're not allowed to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I know of people that won't put anything on their tax returns about how much they gave because the government will know. Well, if your motivation for giving is so that the government will look at you and go, wow, you're a generous giver. I've never met anyone like this. Like, you know, you're expecting to get a letter from the president. I was reviewing, you know, some tax returns today and I saw you gave 25% of your income to the local church. Well done. I've never met anyone who had that as a motivation. But if that's your motivation, that's a problem. But you need to ask yourself about the purpose and the motivation for your giving. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach when he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Obviously, that's impossible. First of all, your hands don't have separate minds. So it's really, it's, it's, it's hyperbole. It's an exaggeration to, to, to teach a point. It's, it's not really possible, but he's talking about the heart and why are you giving what you're giving? Why are you doing what you're doing? One scholar concludes that we should give in such a way that there is no temptation for others to glorify the giver rather than God. That's the idea. Do you give in such a way that when, when the gift has been given, God gets the glory, not you. So there is the extreme of not understanding what Jesus is saying and making sure no one sees you by slipping, slipping the thing into the plate or maybe going up into the box and just kind of, you know, Practicing the no-look drop into the box. There's that extreme. Then there's the other extreme, of course, of the, the guy who walks around with a, make sure every, every Sunday he's got the little pocket there and he puts the envelope in and he leaves the envelope sticking out just enough so everyone knows he has a giving envelope and maybe he even puts the amount on the top of the envelope so you can see exactly how generous he is. And he walks around like this, showing off that envelope so you all know he's a giver. It might be a dollar in that envelope, but, you know, he's... He's making sure everyone knows that he's going to give. If the motivation of your heart is to be seen by others, then you will have no other reward. So what I want to focus today is not about money, not about sound financial principles,
but the proper motivations for Christian giving. These are the principles to give by, principles to focus on before you consider the amount to give. Let me pray real, real quickly here. Father, as we get into these motivations for, for giving, I pray, Lord, that you would open our minds, open our hearts, that if this is an area where we have not allowed you to be Lord over our lives, that now, Lord, today, you will soften our hearts to hear these principles from your word, have a proper understanding of what should be driving our giving to you through the local church. In Christ's name, amen. So I call this gospel-driven giving. And the concept of grace is an extremely important concept for understanding the gospel. But it's also integral to giving. The most overarching motivation for Christian giving should be the grace of God. We're going to spend a little time here in 2 Corinthians 8. Grace-driven giving means that our giving is a response to the grace that God has shown us. Grace and giving are the overarching themes that connect 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul uses the Greek word for grace 18 times in 2 Corinthians. But 10 of those are in these two chapters. These two chapters are key sections on giving for Christians. Maybe the most important in the entire New Testament. Notice how Paul begins his discussion in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul begins by framing the entire discussion about the sacrificial and generous giving among the Macedonians by referring to it as the grace of God. He refers to their contributions to help the poor saints in Jerusalem as an act of grace three times in this chapter. The, the, the first two, the next two are 2 Corinthians 8, 6, and 7. Paul says, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. But how does grace become a motivation for Christian giving? Why does Paul describe it as an act of grace? One scholar commenting on 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 said, Since we are made rich by Christ's grace in both salvation and gifts, the appropriate response can only be our generosity to others. This is the message of these two chapters. Grace begets grace. We need to take more time to meditate on God's grace. The more that we recognize that we've done nothing 
to earn our salvation. Nothing to get ourselves into a right relationship with God. That we were utterly dead in our trespasses and sins before God initiated a relationship with us, the more thankful and grateful we should become. God did not pour out a small drop of grace on us. Notice that 2 Corinthians 9 verse 14 refers to the surpassing grace of God. Not a drop. This connects us to Ephesians 2, a passage that can really help us as we try to meditate on God's grace. Ephesians 2 is one of the best passages to help us understand grace as it relates to the gospel. If you've heard the phrase, preach the gospel to yourself, that, that's kind of where I'm, where I'm going with this. Meditate on what God did for us in Christ Jesus as a motivation for giving back to him. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, or discusses the, uh, the, the absolute wretched and pitiful state we're in before Christ. Paul said, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. According to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There are two sides of a coin I want to focus on here. Both need to be recognized. First, some people believe that they are born good, naturally good. If you talk with someone who is either not a Christian or hasn't been discipled in the faith, they likely will have this mindset. Generally, I'm a good person, especially if I compare myself to those around me. Ephesians 2.1 is the death knell of this view on humanity. We were not good before Christ intervened. In fact, we weren't even alive. We were dead. Our lives were characterized by trespasses and sins. And Paul says in verse 3, by nature, we were destined for God's wrath to be poured out upon us for an eternity. We were destined for hell. That was our destination. This is how we were all born, enemies of God. We did absolutely nothing in ourselves to change this. So first, we were enemies of God by nature. But second, we lived lives fighting against him. Fighting against this God who showed so much love for us. We followed the course of this world, Paul says. We followed the course of this world, living our lives in the passions of our flesh, kicking and screaming and fighting against God with our very beings. Let's say I tell my Greek class, I'm going to give them all A's. I'm feeling really generous this semester. I'm going to give you all an A. And they respond to this gift by, by showing up late to class, taking naps in class, not doing their homework, not really taking the quizzes or tests seriously, not trying at all. To, to learn the subject of the course. If I was to say, you know what, after the way you've responded to this, forget it. Uh, I'm just not going to give you all A's. You're going to get the grade you, you've earned. 
Some people would say, a little unfair, but understandable, the way they treated you after you gave them the gift. Well, realize that God has this offer of salvation to anyone who will come to him, and we live our lives in trespasses and sins. We fight and kick and scream against him until one day, if you've experienced this, he changed your life. He showed you grace. We get to the next few verses here in Ephesians 2. We get to the greatest but in all of Scripture. Six little letters that change the entire course of history, the entire narrative of the Bible, but God. In spite of the fact that we were by nature and by actions fighting against him, God did three things to us. Number one, he made us alive in verse 5. Number two, he raised us. Number three, he seated us in the heavenly places. Then we get to verse 7. And Paul uses a similar phrase as in 2 Corinthians 9.14 in Ephesians 2.7 when he refers to the surpassing riches of his grace. The same Greek word that was in 2 Corinthians 9.14 is used here in Ephesians 2.7. The word surpassing, it refers to a degree that extraordinarily exceeds a point on a scale of extent. When we, when we begin to come to grips with God's grace, it should create such a well of thankfulness that we desire to worship God through giving. I know that you've probably heard that grace is defined as an unearned gift or an unmerited favor, and that is true, but it's actually more than just unearned. We didn't simply not earn it, but we were fighting against him giving it. It's, it's stronger than unearned. It's like de-earned. It's not simply unmerited. It's demerited because we were fighting against the one who was pouring out his grace on us. Grace should be a driving force in Christian giving. Meditate on God's grace and just see if your whole perspective on giving doesn't change. The second motivation is love. While the abundant riches of God's grace is important for understanding the gospel and giving, so is God's love. See, God doesn't just have abundant grace, but motivated by love, he took action. Specifically, he sent Jesus to pay for our sins. The main concept that the atonement of Christ communicates is Jesus's substitutionary death on the cross. Jesus died in our place, paying a penalty we could never pay. However, his sacrificial death is also a model of love for us. So let me ask this question. Do you think it is valid to say that the genuineness of a Christian's love for God can be tested by their giving? Is it valid to say, I can look at how much I give, and that's a picture of my love for God? Some of you probably don't like where I'm going to go with this answer. 2 Corinthians 8.8. 8. Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Another translation, the Christian Standard Bible puts it like this. I am testing the genuineness of your love. Christian giving should be motivated by love. It's a demonstration of our love for God. Paul builds off of the concept of love in 2 Corinthians 8.8 8, and continues in verse 9 by providing an example of giving that is driven by love. Jesus gave of himself. In verse 9, Paul says, 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So Paul's reference to love in 8.8 is what prompted this example. Giving everything one has without love results in nothing. Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate demonstration of love. Think about what your love for your spouse or your children drives you to do. Let's, let's think about our children for a minute. All of us who have children know it's expensive. We kind of know what we're signing up for. Then we sign up and it starts hitting us pretty quickly. But we also know it's very worth it. Every penny, most pennies, it's worth it. When my kids were in high school, they, they played sports. And every time they signed up for a sport, there was a cost. Shoes or equipment or clothing. There was some sort of fees, whatever it was. There was always a cost associated with them signing up for a sport. Well, my son was a wrestler. And he was going into his junior year. And he was in the, the, the state championships his sophomore year. And he went to the finals of the state championship. And I, I kid you not, the, the ending of it was just incredible. He was losing by one point, And if he can get out of the kid's hold, he would have tied it up and they gone into overtime. He was dragging the kid across the mat as he was holding onto his leg. And the kid didn't let go. And the kid won by one point. So he was so close to a state championship his sophomore year. We're going to the junior year. You know how kids grow real fast during that time. So he needs a new pair of shoes. So we go to the sporting goods store. And there were two pair. That's it. Wrestling is not a very big sport in South Carolina, I guess. There was a $60 pair and a $110 pair. And so he, he looks at him. He goes, Dad, this $60 pair is fine. So I take them off the shelf, and I'm looking at them, and the quality was just tremendously different. I could tell the $60 pair was going to barely last the season, and the $110 pair was just, it was just a lot better. And I said, you know what? No, let's, let's go ahead and buy you the $110 pair. He goes, you don't have to do that. I go, I know, but I want to do that. So I bought him the $110 pair. Now, during this, this period of his life, he was, he was struggling. He was having a hard time, as a lot of teenagers do, teenage boys do, and he was struggling with some depression. And so we, we get, fast forward a few months, he's in the finals again. He's in the state championships, final match, junior year, and uh, he, he made a mistake, and the guy who was wrestling against, who was undefeated that year, uh, got on top and was close to pinning him. And somehow, he was able to get out of that and get on top of the guy. I have a video of, of me, you know, shooting a video of this, and you can hear me screaming. My voice is just about gone. And my son pinned him and won the state championship. Do you think that at that moment, I was thinking about the $110 I spent on shoes? I couldn't care less. My love for him was so overwhelming. If I had to go back in time and it was $200, done. $500, done. I don't even know what the number would be, honestly. I, I just can't even imagine what I wouldn't pay for him to have that experience. Because love drives and motivates giving. So I go back to the question. You look at your giving. Is it a demonstration of your love for God? Is it a demonstration of your love for God? 
I saw one stat that it says it costs about $250,000 when you have a kid from birth to age 18. With inflation, what it is, that might be double now. If you homeschool, private school, cost goes up. But I think all of us would look at that and go, it was worth it. It was worth it because love drives us. So as we meditate on the grace of God, and as we, we, we pursue God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, God will fill us with his love so that we can then pour out this love to those around us. And one of the manifestations of Christian love is generous giving, which is why the New Testament has a great concern for the sin of greed and the sin of stinginess. One theologian concludes, I love this quote, it is only at the foot of the blood-stained cross of Calvary that the believer learns the art of Christian giving. Christian giving should be motivated by love. Number three, relationship-driven. The third motivation to gospel-driven giving is relationship. That is, Christian giving should be motivated by our relationship with the Lord, based on our relationship with the Lord. The gospel is the explanation of how God took action to reconcile humans to him. This reconciliation restores us into a right relationship with God. Unfortunately, much, much Christian giving today is taught in such a way to drive the Christian to a calculator rather than their Lord. Get your paycheck, take out a calculator, put some numbers in, multiply it, you get your, 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 your answer on the calculator. You round up a little bit for the offering. That's not what God wants. God wants you to seek a relationship with him, not with your calculator. Read with me again, 2 Corinthians 8.5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul describes the Macedonians as first giving themselves to the Lord. This is not simply a, a, a reference to temporal sequence, but mainly to priority or prominence. We should place our relationship with Christ above all other aspects of our lives. What takes priority in your life? A bigger TV? Your TV, favorite TV show? Your favorite sports team? A hobby? Would your friends or spouse say you put those things above your relationship with God? Even in marriage. I mean, imagine in marriage, you, you, you say hi to your wife twice a week. Maybe have a 15, 30 second conversation on Saturdays. A couple months go by. You say hi on Sundays. You say hi on Wednesdays. A few seconds on Saturdays. Six months, a year. What's your relationship like? It's pretty dead, right? And then there, there's something that happens and it calls for you to be sacrificial towards your spouse. There's no relationship there. You're not going to feel very motivated to want to sacrifice for someone when you don't have a relationship with them. Seek the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that relationship will motivate you. It will change your heart so that you want to give. He will bless us. He's already blessed us. He has poured out on us so much. Adore the Lord for who he is, and we will be changed. 
Our desires were consumed with selfish thoughts and arrogant ponderings. But God has poured his grace out upon us in order for us to walk in the good deeds that he prepared beforehand for us to do. An intimate relationship with the Lord will drive Christian giving, generous Christian giving. It's not about a percentage per se. It's about allowing the closeness of your relationship with Christ to motivate your giving. Last principle is thankfulness. First, we meditate on God's grace. We meditate on God's love that he has shown in saving us. Then we focus on seeking him, on deepening our relationship with him. And finally, we come to the concept of thankfulness. Thankfulness to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ should motivate giving. As a Christian grows in thankfulness to God, their giving should grow as well. The more you recognize all that God has done for us, the more thankful we will be. It's hard to imagine that we could have a truly thankful heart for all that God has done for us and then remain stingy in our giving. As Paul is compelling the church in Corinth to fulfill their words with a generous contribution to help the poor saints in Jerusalem, he describes the giving in terms of many thanksgivings to God, 2 Corinthians 9, 12. Paul commanded that we be thankful several places in the New Testament. So what does it look like when someone lives out thankfulness? So at the beginning of this message, I told you about a guy named Eddie. His full name is Eddie Rickenbacker. So Eddie was on a plane called the Flying Fortress, a B-17, World War II. He was flying over the South Pacific, and his group was supposed to bring a, a message to General MacArthur, and the plane got lost, and it crashed. And they were several days into being at sea, about eight days into sea. They ran out of oranges. They ran out of food. And now they were thinking, okay, we need to get some bait. We're going to use something for bait. So they considered cutting off like earlobes and toes to use as bait to try to catch fish because they were about to die. And as they were talking about this, they're sitting there, and then Eddie feels a bird land on his hat. He can't see it, but he knows it's there. Then slowly at first, but then rather quickly, he reaches up and he grabs the bird, a seagull. And he pulls it down, and they kill it, and they eat all the parts of it that they could eat, but not the guts. They save the guts, and they use that as bait. And with that bait, they caught two tiny fish. And the pattern repeated and repeated. All because of this seagull. And they survived. So Eddie Rickenbacker and his companions were saved from dying by the death of a seagull. So you ask, why did Eddie Rickenbacker sacrifice his money, sacrifice his time to buy shrimp for seagulls and throw it to them every Friday night? Because Eddie Rickenbacker is a man who knows what it means to show thankfulness when a life is given for him. Eddie Rickenbacker is a man who knows what it means to show thankfulness when a life is given for him. Show thankfulness to God for the sacrifice of his son for you. In conclusion, gospel-driven be giving begins by meditating on the grace and love God has shown us. Then it moves to focusing on our relationship with God, seeking him above all else. Finally, it concludes with thanksgiving to God for all he has done. 
Every believer should be involved in giving, in supporting the ministry of the local church. We've discussed four key motivations to giving. Don't overly focus on money. Don't overly focus on the amount. Don't stare too hard at your bank account. Focus instead on God's grace and his love demonstrated for you. Then respond in thankfulness. One survey on reasons for stinginess said that one-third of those polled said they needed to find something they could be more passionate about in order to give more. The study concluded that if you care enough about something, you'd be more inclined to sacrifice some of life's comforts to invest in it. The author of the article concluded, it's about the heart as much as the wallet. It's about the heart as much as the wallet. Pray with me. Father, we are so thankful for your grace. We are so thankful for the love you demonstrated by sending, sending your son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die a perfect life, death, to pay a penalty that we could never pay. Lord, so, some of us have a hard time allowing you to be Lord over our finances. And I ask, Father, that you would work on our hearts today. And allow the spirit to change our hearts because we think about the, your grace and your love. We think about our relationship with you and we can pour out in thankfulness back to you through giving. Work on our hearts, Lord. Work on our hearts. In Christ's name we pray.